I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome along to episode seven of the Drive Nation podcast. I'm Dan Prosser, uh, joined as ever by Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Dan. How are you? Yeah, very well. We're still recording this remotely. We still can't get together to do these in person, uh, but I think we're making it work. Um, And with this episode of the podcast, Andrew, we're talking about McLaren. Um, Plenty to discuss there, I think. Uh, what what, What springs to mind when you first hear McLaren? Are you thinking fast cars or are you thinking Formula One? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I, I, I think fast cars, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you know, ten mm. years ago, well, yeah, I, I would have, it would have just been Formula One. Uh, I think that probably says a lot about the way that uh, people like you and me live our lives. Um, you know, McLaren Automotive, as opposed to McLaren F1, is very much sort of front and centre of a of a journalist's life. Um, but I guess the reason um, that we're doing this podcast now, uh, or, or, or I guess just the hook for it, is that there was a, and we posted about this and got an amazing response uh, yesterday, there was an auction, wasn't there, on the uh, Collecting Cars website of a 720S. Yep. Um, and this was a quarter million pound car, which ended up going for half price, despite the fact it was it was two years old, it had a really nice spec on it, 50 grand's worth of extras, only done 5,000 miles, I think. Um, And I think we thought that this is a time to talk about McLaren, talk about some of the, I think, concerns that some people rightly or wrongly have about the brand. um, And then, you know, use that to sort of expand into a sort of a wider understanding of, you know, what McLaren Automotive is, um, where it's come from. And I guess most important of all, where we think it either is going to or should be going to. Yeah, because that one collecting cars auction that finished last week, that's that's kind of McLaren automotive in microcosm isn't it this wonderful supercar really highly regarded that we all think is just spectacular to drive selling for half price after two years which speaks of some of the issues that McLaren is having with um, residual values and and all the rest of it so it it kind of combines everything that's great and not so great about uh, McLaren into one one auction 
Yeah, and I think something else that we ought to um, be looking at is, you know, there's a lot of talk about McLaren um, and their particular issues, and, and I'm sure there are some. But also, you know, I'm not sure that it isn't a wider problem than that. And sure. I think that I think that there are some misconceptions, or maybe that there are some views which maybe were uh, <clears throat> current and valid once, but maybe the world has or McLaren has has changed a bit since then. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll talk a bit a bit about that too. Of course. So the the 720s was a performance model, as you said, five thousand miles. Um, it sold for one hundred twenty four thousand five hundred pounds. Uh, there's a buyer's premium on top, uh, buyer's premium on top of that. So the the buyer actually paid £130,500. Um, that still undercut the cheapest 720 that I could find for sale in the UK by around £10,000. So what's your instinct there, Angie? Do you, do you think that really was a bargain basement 720S or is that now the market value for that car? Interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think, I, I, I think you know, what, what that says to me is that what these cars are being advertised for on all the sites that you and I probably spend too much time on um, probably isn't or shouldn't be much of an indication of what the actual transaction price is. And I think that actually that says an awful lot about... Um, you know, the way the market in general is at the moment. I mean, obviously, we know we're living in the most extraordinary times. Um, everybody is worried about um, not just, you know, the here and now, but, you know, how things are going to be, whether they're going to be able to earn a living, whether they're going to have any money. And and I just think that buying cars like that is, is just not very high up most people's agendas. And that always means, doesn't it, you know, the demand goes down, the supply stays constant, that, you know, the price goes down too. So, you know, I think that, um actually you know if you looked at that collecting cars thing the, you know there were lots of viewers there were lots of you know registered watchers there were quite a few i think there were 26 bids on the car i can't think of any reason to think that that in these circumstances at this time was not you know the right price for that car yeah i think that the car found its audience didn't it yeah definitely definitely um, and as we know, you know, collecting cars is, you know, it's a pretty new concept, but it's going great guns. I think they've just done six million quids worth of business. Um, and, you know, I think that if you were going to go and buy a car like that, you would be aware um, of that auction and, and that you would, you know, you, that, that you would be switched on to it. So, no, I think I think it is a fair price. But whether that says more about, um, you know, the McLaren or more about the market is, is, is another conversation. I, I feel inclined at the moment to think that it probably says much more about where the market is relative to where we are used to it having been for the last few years um, than anything else. Yeah, I suspect it's a COVID-19 price, isn't it, really, rather than a, a sort of McLaren price. Um, th- there were, as ever, Andrew, we, we had lots of really insightful comments um, in response to your post. Um, I, they quite clearly demonstrate that lots of DNers are um, pretty switched on about the supercar market. They, they clearly, a good, good number of them, buy and sell these cars. Um, so there's lots of insight in the, the comments. Um, a few people said they saw this coming and perhaps that's fair i mean there have been there's been a lot of talk about oversupply of mclaren supercars and also the market just turned upside down by this covid-19 situation so lots of people say that they've they suspected this was going to happen and they think it's going to happen even more um do you think we're looking at a new normal is it are, are we over the next few months, just like to see lots of bargains here and there. Yeah, I do. Um, and and you know, and the thing is, it's always the way, isn't it? When things suddenly turn to crap, uh, the very very small number of people who are in a position to take advantage of that, i.e., they have the cash and can still buy these cars, they're the guys who are going to, 
you know, obviously make the most of it. Um, I think there will be a new normal, but I don't think this is it. Um, I think, to be honest with you, I think things may fall a little bit more. Uh, and then I think that inevitably there will be a correction. So, you know, you have to look at where it plateaus out. But, you know, I am fairly confident that wherever that plateau is, it's going to be some distance below where we have, you know, got nice and, you know, comfortable with it being. Um, and I think that times are going to be harder. And I think that makers of cars not just mclaren by any means but you know if you are in the you know super high luxury market as these guys are um you know you are going to be looking about you know taking stock out of your system about in frankly in future making you know a smaller number of cars and trying to sell them for you know as as, as much as you can because i don't think that the old rules apply anymore mm. if i uh speaking personally if i had any intention of moving my car on anytime soon actually I, I intend to keep it for a very long time this would all be very concerning because presumably an alpine a110 is worth about 20 quid now i don't know actually because there are so <laughs> few of them around that's a relief <laughs> um I, I, I don't know i to be honest I, I i haven't looked but i'll tell you what i do think <clears throat> i think it it strikes to the heart of why i think people should buy cars which is frankly you should buy a car because you want to have that car if yeah. you want to have a car, if you want to have a 720S because you just love the idea of having a 720S and having, in inverted commas, had one for a bit myself last year, uh, I, that is something I get completely. If you want a car like that, then you can't really lose um, as long as you can keep up with the repayments because, you know, if it depreciates as, you know, almost all non-limited edition, in fact, all non-limited edition um, standard production cars do, um, then you still got the car and you can go and enjoy it. If you make some money out of it, fine. But if not, just you've just got the car. Just go and enjoy it. Uh, I think the people who lose most, frankly, are the people who do do, to be honest, you know, 5,000 miles in two years. So you've not had a huge amount of enjoyment out of the car. You've taken a massive hit on it. Um, and, you know, and what for? Um, so, you know, if I had a 720S, I'd never sell it. I'd do, I wouldn't do 5,000 miles. I'd do 50,000 miles, 100,000 miles on it because... <laughs> You know, why wouldn't you? I mean, you know, it would mean more to me than, than anything else that that thing was just sitting out there, you know, at my beck and call. And gosh, you know, what a lucky boy I would feel. Exactly the way I feel about my car. Yeah. Um, now, you touched on it, Andrew. You were lucky enough to run a 720S for, uh, was it six months? Yeah, six months. Yeah, first six months of last year. And presumably it was in and out of the, the dealership the whole time. It set yeah, fire to itself. I, it wouldn't start. It locked you in it. I never saw it, actually. It sort of turned up one day on a truck, and it, it, it never got off the truck. It just turned around and stripped it. No. <laughs> I, I have, you know, I know that enough people who, you know, have no, who are not making mischief have said that they've had, you know, big problems. There was one bloke who said he had one for six weeks and it was in the garage for five of them but i you know as a as a as a journalist and as a reporter i can only report as i find um this car came to me for six months um i absolutely mullered it i thrashed it round tracks i took it to geneva and back over the alps fast as i could and there was one day where it flashed up a warning that the headlights were no longer able to see around corners um, <laughs> and it never did it again and that in in six months of really really hard driving is literally it didn't it wasn't even something went wrong with it it was literally the only thing it flashed up of any description other than that it it, it behaved like a you know anything you like a volkswagen golf in terms of its reliability and it felt as solid on the last day as the first it was it was perfect um i think 
quite clearly, you know, McLaren, you mustn't forget McLaren is still a very, very young company. McLaren Automotive is. Uh, you know, they are still learning. And I think that, you know, with a car like that, I think that there were some early software is- issues which needed patching. Um, I believe that's all been done. Um, and you and I, Dan, you know, we drive McLaren press cars a lot. And I'm sure those press cars are built as well as McLaren can build them. Um, but, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever been let down by any McLaren I've driven. And you, you know what McLaren press launches are like. You know, you go to a track and you go and, you know, those cars spend not a few hours, but days and, you know, sometimes a couple of weeks basically being thrashed around tracks. And I've never known one of them break, which is more than I can say for a lot of other brands. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, the, the, there has been a recall, hasn't there? There are reports of um, certain McLarens being a little bit frail, but based on our own experiences, they've been pretty tough and durable. Um, now, Andrew, I wonder if you have a bit of insight to shed on this. There are people discuss uh, McLaren and Aston Martin and their approach to shifting new cars into the market. Um, lots of people say that they they do things similarly, perhaps make the same mistakes. Um, there's a suggestion that both companies will heavily discount new cars, um, will put uh, artificially high guaranteed future values on them, um, and, and that gets the punters into the showrooms, that gets cars flying out of the you know off the forecourts it makes the the sales figures for the year look good um but the consequence is that later down the road um you you're you're not earning as much revenue as you might do because you're giving very heavy discounts on these cars and then when the the when the car comes back to you and it's actually not worth as much as the guaranteed future value um you as a company suddenly owe the finance company a big chunk of cash um, a bit of a nod of the head to the YouTube channel JM on Cars here. Um, do you is, is that something that you've heard discussed before? That that sort of way of operating? Yeah, it is something like like you. I I have heard discussed. Um, whether it is true or not, but, or to what extent it is true, I don't know. You know, I'm not yeah. a I'm not a consumer journalist. It's not it's not an area which you know maybe I should have greater expertise um, than I do because I think it would. Um, it may go some way to explaining these issues and, and, and shedding more light on, on how real they are or how maybe just perceived they are. Um, but no, it's not something that I, I, I have a lot of experience of. Um, but I do know, um, and you know, we've seen it with other companies. We saw it with, um, with Bentley in the you know, early 2000s um, when suddenly you know, they had this thing called the Continental GT and suddenly for the first time literally in its life Bentley could make as many cars as it could it could sell the lot and so it did um, and it oversupplied the market um, and you know because um, there were too many cars out there when things got a bit you know, things suddenly got extremely tough for them and it hit residuals and, and they had to work very very hard to recover that position it's, it's very tempting isn't it if, you know, if, you're mm. a, if you're a new company or if you're a company like Aston Martin which has had a torrid time and suddenly you find yourself with product you can sell um, the temptation just to get them out there um, is, is entirely understandable, particularly when you have, you know, investors banging down your door, you know, wanting a return on their investment. But, you know, I think we have seen, you know, over the years, um, you know, that in the long term, uh, it does tend, tend to come back on and, and, and bite you on the arse somewhat. Yeah, and it demonstrates both in the case of Aston Martin and McLaren that very, very good product isn't enough to prop up you know, a sizable business, is it? It takes some very deft supply management, 
um, and after sales as well to to keep investors happy, to keep customers happy and coming back for more. Yeah, and also, you know, the, I, I think that it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, if the, the, the two brands that you um, alighted upon and which, you know, the other one we have uh, discussed in a previous podcast, Aston Martin and McLaren, um, you know, I don't think, certainly at the moment, there is such a thing as a bad car that either of those company makes. Um, you know, I, I think that they both make, I think they both understand the sorts of cars that they, are, they should be making uh, and, and are making them. What those two companies have in common, however, is they neither of them has a big, big backer. You know, neither of them has a Volkswagen um, behind them. So nobody, not, they don't have that, you know, that corporate arm around their shoulders. And so it, they are inevitably going to be more exposed um, to the way the market is behaving than, <coughs> than another company like a, a Lamborghini, uh, which at the end of the day is owned by the largest car company in the world. So, you know, it obviously, you know, makes things more important and potentially more difficult for them. Yeah. OK, well, let's rewind a little bit. Um, depending on how you measure it, McLaren Automotive is now a decade old, thereabouts. Um, what do you remember from, say, the mid noughties uh, Do you remember whispers, Andrew, of McLaren Automotive uh, setting up as a car company its own right? Or had those whispers been going on for years and years? Well, I suppose, you know, they, you know, they obviously, you know, they did the F1 um, and that totally, you know, established McLaren in our uh, in our understanding as a manufacturer of road cars um and then obviously they went from that to do the slr um yeah the whatever it was it was the mercedes benz amg slr mclaren i think that's what they i can <laughs> i can always remember thinking it was a bit of a, a a poor show that despite the fact that mclaren engineered the car despite the fact that it was built in woking that the word mclaren was like the last name on a very long list of names that this car had um so you know, I guess in our perceptions, they never really stopped doing it. And it didn't seem like such a leap that they would go from doing a car like that for somebody else um, to doing, you know, perhaps rather cars which are rather more appropriate to the McLaren brand um, for themselves. So it wasn't like a sort of, oh, my goodness, McLaren are going to go and do a road car because, you know, they'd done their own road car before it had become the most revered uh, road car of them all and then they'd done a load of stuff for somebody else so no it wasn't um it wasn't a big surprise um i guess the biggest surprise was when the as it was known at the time uh, the mclaren mp4 12c came out shortly to become just the 12c um uh, what a frankly patchy product uh, it was when it was new um you know uh yeah, you may come out. You, you you launch yourself as an effectively an all new car company, and you think that job one was to make sure that the product was as good as you could possibly get it. Um, and in this case, um, that didn't happen. I remember f- seeing the twelve C for the first time. It was before that. Sorry, the MP four dash twelve C for the first time, and this was before it had been unveiled in public. Um, and a, a bunch of journalists, myself included, this must have been two thousand and nine. Uh, perhaps 08 I, th- I think 09 um, and we were um, we had to go down to uh, Woking to the McLaren uh, MTC isn't it um, and we'd be told that we were told that we'd been we would be shown this new supercar that we'd all heard so much about but none of us had seen and so we went into that little sort of theatre room that they have at the MTC 
Um, and and the, the MP412C was unveiled to us. Um, and I, I was so excited about the, the idea of McLaren Automotive at that point. Um, and I just, I remember feeling perhaps a little bit underwhelmed when we saw this car for the first time, but before any of us had seen any pictures of it, um, there it was in the flesh. And I, I just, I thought it was slightly derivative, um, a, a little bit uh, sort of unambitious from a styling point of view um, for this new and incredibly ambitious um, arm of McLaren. Um, I, I didn't get to drive it first time around. I did later on. But perhaps, Andrew, you can talk us through your first impressions. Tell us where you were when you first drove it and what you thought. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I think I was in the minority. I quite liked the way that it looked because to me, I mean, I can remember somebody describing it as a looking like a, you know, a, a bad Korean concept car. And I just thought that was not fair. Um, and actually, I drove one again quite recently. And, you know, as much as the way that it drove, um, I, I like the way, I still like the way that it looked. To me, it just looked really, really clean and neat. I didn't think the back end was brilliant. But anyway, that's, that, I guess that's, mm. that's, that's not really the question you asked me. Um, <laughs> I drove it, I have two memories of early drives, which are a little bit conflicting with each other. The first one, I literally just went to uh, the McLaren um, Technology Centre and borrowed one and i drove it down to goodwood uh not on the track but just around the roads um down there because i know him very well and they were close and i didn't have an awful lot of time um and you know you won't find anybody who drove one of those things for the first time and wasn't completely utterly blown away by the way it got down a road and the way that super super clever um suspension system worked um no anti-roll bars you know interactive and it just seemed to sort of resurface the road in front of you. And I think from that point of view, it was an immensely clever car. Uh, it was fabulously fast. Um, you know, we think it's 10 years ago and how many cars have come out. And, you know, and I think there's temptation to think the 12C was a bit sort of, you know, by modern terms, McLaren light. It's not. It's even today, you go and drive a 12C today, properly fast car, you know, very light, 600 horsepower, loads of torque. It went like the wind. Um, but... At the same time, just feeling, you know, more uh, that I admired, admired it more than I loved it. Um, and then the next time I drove it was at the, uh, you'll know this, the autocar. Well, they call it Britain's best driver's car, but everybody at autocar calls it handling day. Um, and it turned up to one of those at Rockingham. And it just didn't work. I couldn't believe it. In the one environment you would expect a McLaren to be head and shoulders above everything else. It just didn't work. It felt remote. It did some slightly strange things. Um, you know, it felt... It, it, it didn't feel set up for someone like me, who is, you know, a reasonably... Uh, well, very experienced, I guess, and, you know, reasonably good driver, but not a superhero. Um, and I didn't... You know, and the one thing that you will... As you will know, is, is that, you know, before you can drive a car like that fast, it has to make you confident. You have to have confidence in the machinery um and i just didn't i can i can remember there was one when we came to do the scores uh, there were loads of judges and i can't remember which one it was but i can remember that one of the judges placed it below a course of vxr in his <laughs> in his in his estimation um and wow. yeah so it, it it wasn't great really and then the the twin test came out with the oh winning the 458 wasn't it the ferrari 458 um and i can't remember the mclaren winning one um and us all thinking blimey 
you know, what have they done? Have they, you know, had they literally, to mix my metaphors furiously, come out the gate and dropped the ball? Um, and, and, and that's what it felt like. And, and I've always said that the most extraordinary thing about what happened to McLaren thereafter um, was that they actually recovered not from ground zero, but from actually below that, because, you know, it would have been much easier if the, if the 12C had never been launched like it was because it was you know the car just it wasn't right in terms of its quality and it wasn't right in terms of the way that it drove um and when you're up against something as you know ferociously capable as a 458 with from a company with a reputation like ferrari it it just wasn't good enough um and then as we know you know anthony sheriff who was the um the man who was a genius in terms of um you know envisaging the concept for cars like um you know, the 12C and, you know, and particularly the, the P1, he left the company. Um, I'm not sure why, but I'm sure most of us can guess. And then Mike Fluitt came in. Um, and Mike would be the first to tell you that, you know, he is not um, a gifted car engineer, but he knows how to get, get cars built. And, you know, he understood what the problems was and took that raw material, turned it into the 650S and, you know, the p1 came out and the rest um we know yeah um and i, I remember when the 12c was still current uh, when it's new perhaps <laughs> and i think it was ron dennis who quite publicly stated that it was a was it he probably said a superior motor vehicle to the 458 in every uh, measurable way or something um and you thought he, that you've absolutely identified why you've completely missed the point of those cars <laughs> exactly right exactly right it was it, it kind of felt a bit like ron's supercar didn't it um but then i mean there, there was some stuff about it that was really wonderful as you've said and then they updated it with the the 650s new styling um reworked a lot of the the chassis systems and so on the steering in particular and it was a much better car to drive yeah 650s was 650s to me is, is is kind of where it started um you know a 12c is interesting i mean i drove one quite recently and uh, as, as i said and it's still it's still a really impressive car. Um, I still didn't love it, but you know, you know, you can get you know from a value point of view, you know, you know, if you think that seven twenty S was cheap, geez, I mean, you, you know, for half what they paid for that seven twenty S, you know, you can get a twelve C now. I think you know, I think they're in the sixties. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah. So um, you know, that's a lot of car. That's an awful lot of car. And of course, you still have to worry about what happens if you get a big bill where you're going to service it um, and everything else, but. You know, a McLaren for the price of, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, an upspec Cayman is 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 quite a it's quite a tempting proposition. Uh, but you know, the 650s yes, that was that was just great. Um, it, it was cliche coming. Um, you know, the car the 12C should have been from the get go, um, and you know, and then suddenly that just I think that car, I, I think McLaren because it was so new. I think that there was I think so many people wanted it to succeed. I think that there was a sense that okay fine you know they've had their practice car this is the real thing and uh and it was amazing 650s absolutely fantastic car um and i didn't really i can remember i drove um a 650s out to geneva and back it would have been i suppose three years ago it was it was right in its sort of um dying days maybe two years ago um and thinking they don't need to replace this car, and there was this other one coming along. I'm thinking, well, how do they do better than that? And then they did the 720s, and and we found out the answer to that question. 
Yeah, I, I I thought the 650s was incredibly capable, but the first time I really loved driving a McLaren was the 675LT. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about my my first ever experience with that car a little bit later on. But what what, what did that car demonstrate to you? Uh, the LT was just something else, wasn't it? Um, it, 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 it it was it, it wasn't just a great car; it was a great great McLaren because it did. It was all about the driving experience, um, and it proved that concept of just get the weight out of it you know 100 kilograms lighter than the already extremely light um 650s and it was it it was such a i can remember um having one up at anglesey for a day or two and just just thinking to myself you know i can't imagine you know me having you know significantly more fun than this in a, in a in a car that i can also get into and you know and drive a long distance on the public road i mean to me that is what uh, a McLaren road car should be it should be a car that is you know ultimately and utterly rewarding to drive but which you can also use um and you know that for me is why for instance a 675 LT is a is a much better product and more to the point a much better McLaren than something like a Senna which is obviously you know incredible and amazing to drive on a track but it's very very limited in its use yeah. And then, of course, after 675LT, uh, McLaren followed it up with the Sport Series models, which I, they're all just wonderful cars. They're, they're, they're stunning to drive. Um, also, the, the P1, which you and I will agree, I'm sure, is a spellbinding machine. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then also the 720. So ever since the 650S or, well, yeah, ever since the 650S, I think um, the cars that they've come along with have been really first rate haven't they um so generally speaking andrew where do you stack mclarens up alongside ferraris and lambos are they sort of nipping at their heels or are they actually well clear i mean at the worst they are you know heads held high in that company um yeah i would um well i mean lamborghini for me you know an svj Aventador in the right circumstances on the right road. I mean, there's no car has a greater sense of occasion than that. Uh, you're right. It is incredible. On I, I stepped out of it having driven it in North Wales, shaking. It was unbelievable. But it's it's what I was going back to what I was saying about the you know the car being usable. You know, the rest of the time, um, it just makes life you know just too difficult for you. And you know, and and the fact is is that certainly I. Um, I suspect that anybody would be, certainly somebody like me, I'd just be much quicker point to point in a 720S. I'd be more confident driving and ultimately I would, although there would be less sort of majesty and theatre about it, I'd have a, a richer driving experience. So um, so for me, Lamborghinis are, to be honest, uh, not quite there. Against Ferraris, yeah, I mean, they're absolutely nip and tuck. Um, you know, I would say... That okay, I haven't driven an F8 Tributo, but I've driven a Pista, and obviously I've driven a lot of 488s. I would say for me, a 720s is slightly more my cup of tea than than those. Although I love the Pista and I love the 48. No, I love the 488 GTB. A Pista is is for me. It takes away a bit too much for what little it actually adds to that experience. Um, but that's a very personal thing. I felt the same way about the Speciali um, relative to the 458. Uh, I always thought a standard 458 was the most miraculous of cars. And it's, again, it comes back because it's just so much more usable. Um, but yeah, I mean, and you, know, you, you have Ferrari, which have been making road cars for the thick end of 70 years. 
And here comes McLaren Automotive. And in 10 years, actually in less than that, because they've been at that level for a while, probably since the LT first came out, um, I would say that Ferraris and um, McLaren are absolutely nose to nose at the moment. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, so let's let's talk about the P1 because so McLaren Automotive turned out this hybrid hypercar um, within half a decade, wasn't it? Really, of the company being founded, less, a lot less. I think P1 was twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, only going for a few years before they delivered this spectacular car with really innovative technology. Um, it it looked, still looks sensational. I think for me, the best looking of the, the Holy Trinity, as they're called, the the nine eighteen Spider and the LaFerrari. Um, I think it's the, the the most attractive of the lot. It's also the only one that I've driven, so perhaps I'm for that reason slightly swayed towards it. But wow, what a driving experience that thing delivers! I, th- I think I think what was amazing about it, I can remember talking to the guys at McLaren about it, and when they decided to do it. They genuinely didn't have a single person in the business who'd ever done anything involving a hybrid. They had no idea. They literally did not have the slightest clue how to do it. And so they just thought, well, okay, we need to find out. And so we'll go and talk to some people and we'll go and hire some people and we'll do some research ourselves. And they came up with this, frankly, ridiculous machine. Uh, 903 horsepower um, and and all the, you know, DRS pushed a pass... um, you know, plug it in, drive it on electrical. I mean, every single function of a, you know, of, 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 an, of, of an electric hybrid was there in this, you know, insane hypercar. And, and more besides, because it would do that, um, that suspension thing where it would, you know, it would just drop, it would just halve its ride height and whatever, it would triple its downforce when you went into track mode. And it would become a completely different car all over again. I think it's one of the cleverest cars I've ever driven. And knowing a little bit about its gestation, I think it's one of the most impressive achievements of the three. Um, and having been, so I'm not trying to kind of pull rank here or be smart, but I have been very lucky enough to drive all three. <laughs> um, it's certainly of the three, the most focused uh, and the one that I would choose to drive around a track um, but uh, yeah I, well I mean the Holy Trinity is another conversation altogether but I think each of them has their place let's put it that way but um, yeah I thought a staggering achievement P1 I, I it's it's interesting being a, a car journalist because you'll first hear a rumour of this new car coming along um, and then a very small select group of people will get to, to fly out somewhere exotic to drive it and it just seems impossible that you'll ever get your hands on one of these machines um, and then inevitably well if you if you're working on the right title you do and i remember it was it must have been i don't know three years after the the p1 was first launched um at evo magazine i finally got to drive one and i didn't just drive one i had it for a day up in north wales um we had anglesey circuit and it was mine for the day and it, it just it blew me away your, your your grandchildren simply won't believe it if it, the, the world that they are going to live in and you're going to say yeah when i was you know in my 20s there i was with this insane device and it didn't come with chaperones and rules and everything else there were the 
best roads in the country. There was this incredible racetrack. It was mine, and I could do whatever the hell I liked with it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've both been doing this for years and years, and it still sounds like dreamland, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the best days in this line of work I've ever had, no question. Um, and so I spent a couple of hours in the morning driving it on, on circuit in track mode. And I, rather than this terrifying sort of malevolent beast, I found this incredibly welcoming, um, exciting, but, you know, very manageable hypercar. And I just, I, I just remember having all the systems off and skidding it around Anglesey um, and just finding it so sort of malleable. And I, I couldn't believe that this million quid, 900 horsepower hypercar could be driven that way. It was astonishing. Yes. Well, I mean, absolutely. And... <sighs> yeah i mean but that's the mclaren way of doing things isn't it i mean have you ever been in a mclaren which is actually a senna on the road does scare me a bit um but only if you're stupid enough to turn all the traction control off um because it's so stiff and it does ping off everything um and if you try to use all 800 horsepower then you know you can find yourself you know quite busy but that's more to do with you being an idiot than any fundamental shortcoming in the car but no i mean you, you just I think unless you're an idiot, you just shouldn't get scared in them because they're not because they are so well developed these days um, by people who just understand what's needed. Um, and yeah, I think they're just they're just brilliant. Can I, I, sorry, I can, can I can I can I just can I just tell a quick P1 story? <laughs> um, I was the first journalist to get to drive the P1 GTR, so the sort of the the, 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 the track day version. Um, and for some reason, the only place that I could drive it was in Qatar. Um, <laughs> so, um, and um, yeah, and so the P1 GTI, it, it, it was amazing. I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on it because it's not core to the McLaren story, but 1,000 horsepower, a bit lighter than the road car, you know, stack more downforce, I mean, as amazing as, as, as you might find. But uh, I... Uh, what really made me realize just what a lucky boy I was and just what a ridiculously fortunate thing there was I was to, able to be out there doing it was that they gave me a P1 to learn the track. <laughs> just to warm yourself up. Literally, they said, well, you know, you haven't been here before and you don't want to be thinking about which way the track goes, so you better go out and learn it. Take this. <laughs> and they and they gave me a p1 to learn the track and it was just completely insane but then and and it, this is something that i found so often with sort of you know race versions of road cars actually however friendly the p1 was the gtr was even more so um i guess because that's what it was designed to do but yeah anyway so yes my my, my, my school car was a mclaren p1 <laughs> similar to the the center launch that you and i both did at estoril um and they they warmed us up in 720s's yes well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, so I, I was building up to um, something with my P1 story. So I'd spent the morning at Anglesey Circuit, and then later in later on in the day, in the afternoon, I took the P1 and a 675LT over to the stunning roads in Snowdonia. And that just set off the day as a whole, you know, with the P1, 675LT, my favourite road in North Wales, Um hammering them back and forth and i uh, the p1 i i love the 675 lt but the p1 was just spectacular i think it you know it's it's got that a degree of extra rawness the way that stones ping up you know into the underside of the body into the wheel arches um and it just feels so raw and aggressive but 
so drivable and approachable on the road. And I, I, I think that's probably the best drive I've ever had in a, in a McLaren. Um, the, so you preferred the P1 to the LT? Well, it was a more spellbinding experience. Yeah. I mean, but there, there, there are no wrong answers here. I, I'm, yeah. I, I, I'd probably, and not by much, but I'd probably go the other way. Um, just, just, just because the LT is that much lighter and just felt a little bit more um, alive, I guess. To tell the truth, the, the P1 that we had was McLaren's own car, P1 Oeuvre, I think it is, yes. isn't it? That, that very dark purple car. And that, that car has been around the block. Um, and so when I drove it, it, it wasn't tight as a drum, not at all. You know, there was some play in the steering. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't feel like a, a, an ultra-fit car, whereas the LT that we had did. Um, so in sort of objective ways, I think the LT had an edge on it. But there's just something about the P1 experience. Perhaps it's also that even more reclined seating position that just puts you as though you're lying on your back with your feet stretched out way in front of you. It's made you feel like you're in a Group C Le Mans car. Yeah, it's a very special thing, isn't it? It really is. So, Andrew, your best ever drive in a McLaren, then? It doesn't have to be... A, I'll, I'll clarify this. It doesn't have to be a McLaren automotive car. Oh, OK. OK, so... Um, well, OK, I'm not going to bang on about road testing the F1 because... <laughs> We've done that. We, 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 we have done that, but... That was back in episode one of the podcast, if anyone wants to find it. Yeah, um, but um, once we'd done all the numbers on the car, um, I did... It's a contextual thing, because, you know, today, if, even if you drive, you know, a P1, and it's amazing, you know, there will be other stuff that you have driven, which is not a million miles away from that in terms of what it can do. In 1994, there was nothing. There was nothing, frankly, that anybody had ever driven, which was like an F1. And I got to drive it from... Um, Bruntingthorpe, where we'd done the, most of the numbers, up to the North Yorkshire Moors, where we were going to go and do the photo shoot. Um, and I was alone in the car in a McLaren F1. I was whatever I was. I was 28 years old. Um, wow. And it was, it, it was the most memorable drive for all sorts of reasons. And, and, and not all of them good. Um, you know, I can remember getting to a point where I didn't trust myself and I can remember thinking to myself can I really handle this thing have I got what it takes to control this car in a safe fashion on what was a public road with other road users um, am I sufficiently grown up not to because you know the right hand pedal on that car I mean it's it's like mainlining something it's you know it's it is so addictive you can't help yourself um and I, you know and I you know I can remember at the end of it getting to the what was it the Black Swan Hotel in Helmsley and parking it outside and the overwhelming feeling that I had at the end of that drive when I handed the keys to somebody else was just relief yeah um and to this day that's what I feel so that's certainly the most memorable drive um i've had i think the best one funnily was was a race i did um in a 570s gt4 at spa um the year before last it was their first they you know, they have a one mate race series and i was the journo and i sort of bowled up um and in my i did two races and i came second in the first one um Good work. and you know and because you know in one mate racing the, 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 there's nowhere to hide and you know it's you and a bunch of people all in the same car 
Um, and Spa is, is my favourite circuit to, to drive around, and the car was just superb. Um, and I just had the most amazing weekend in it. And, and, and to my immense surprise, um, I ended up standing on a podium, um, which, yeah, so that was, a, that was a fairly fun thing to do too. I was very jealous of you when I saw you were doing that. Um, nothing like as jealous, actually, though, of you getting to drive an F1. And I, I know you've revisited that car more recently. Um, I've, I've sat in one, but I've, I've never driven one. So, you know, I, I know the background story. I know the legend of the F1, but I don't know what it's like to drive. So, Andrew, does it steer? Does it handle? How are the brakes? I know it's got no driver aids at all. What's it like in the wet if you've driven it in the wet what's the central seating position like okay okay so the central seating position is um it, it might be the best thing about it because you get in the car and you never think about it again apart from you suddenly realize that in every other car you've driven you adjust for the fact that it's a left or a right hand corner because your position relative to it depending on whether it's left or right is different when you're sitting on one side of the car or the other when you're in the middle it's always the same um, and it is clearly the way, in pure engineering terms, all cars should be. Uh, it, it is a little undignified getting in and out, and I know that some of McLaren's um, perhaps more elderly, more portly customers weren't that knocked out by the idea, but it's clearly um, absolutely the way forward. Um, uh, yeah, I, was, I, I drove um, the same car I did the road test in, um, whatever it was, 26 years ago. I drove it again um, last year. Uh, and with, uh, what else did we have? We had a 720S there, we had a P1 there, and we had a Senna there. Um, and, you know, in some regards, it hasn't aged at all. Um, it is still blow your mind fast. You s- simply won't believe how quickly this thing gets from one place to another. And people look at the figures and they'll say, oh, well, it's only 6.3 seconds from <laughs> 0 to 100. You know, forgetting no launch control, no traction control. You've got to do this thing called changing gear. Um, and, and also, you know, and, and you're, you're on tyres, which frankly might, have been made, might as well be made out of wood compared to the tyres that, you know, that, you're, that you'll get on a, on a centre or something like that. Um, so, you know, that 6.3 not to 100 time, you know, translate, if it had had all the advantages that modern cars had, it would be, what would it be, a mid-low five, something like that. So that's how quick that car really is. Um, the engine, I would say the best engine ever fitted to a road car. Um, the way that it pulls, the noise that it makes, the power that it delivers, the I mean, it is, well, as I said earlier, it, it, it is like mainlining something. It is utterly addictive. And in a way that, you know, however good, however powerful some, you know, modern twin turbo hybridized V8 might be. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, that 6.1 litre V12 was a masterpiece of engineering. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget it. I will, and, and to go get back in it again 25 years after the last time you did. And for it to have diminished not one degree um, in that time just shows you what, I mean, goodness knows what it must have felt like when I first drove it. I mean, I, 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 I would love to be back in that car experiencing that engine for the first time all over again. Um, mm. Yeah. Is it, is it a physical car to drive? That, I mean, no driver, is no power steering? It is, it, it is a very physical car to drive. Um, it, you know, it's quite soft. In fact, by modern car standards, it's very soft. Um, obviously, no power steering. I mean, beautiful steering. But, 
you know the handling does feel you know of its age it was in the in the dry it was you know it was a very um capable car in its day uh, because it was light and it had big tires on it and it was very low and it you know and its suspension geometry was pretty good um so you know all those boxes were ticked um but today you know you notice the way that the car rolls you notice that you know obviously that the tires are have nothing like the grip um of a modern car so it's a car to enjoy the handling of um for the feel of it i mean the feel is still superb but ultimately you know on the limit it's not gonna you know have the poise the damping the accuracy um that you get from a modern car the only area in which i would say it was deficient these days and frankly it probably was when it was newer the brakes given the performance potential i mean you know in 1994 i would say that it had you know pretty good brakes for a supercar but this wasn't a supercar this was the world's first hypercar um and the brakes felt i would guess they probably felt adequate then um they don't anymore they just you know and you've really really got to take that into account um because to be honest with you they are not quite up to the job uh in the wet uh i did drive one in the wet um we had to shoot the cover somewhere uh down in the south of england um and i drove a customer car in the wet uh and i found that quite um focusing i think is the word Mm. (laughs) Um, others have found it somewhat more so and have had some fairly enormous accidents uh, as a result yeah not something to take liberties with in the wet at all Mm, i I can imagine wow well i'm gonna have to imagine aren't i because i'm unlikely to drive one anytime soon unless we've got a very friendly uh dn listener with a mclaren f1 uh please get in touch yes i mean mclaren it has to be said um for this um big thing that we did for autocar with it last year i mean they did recommission sp5 which had been sat not doing very much for a while um and they did get it going again for us and they were unbelievably um accommodating and trusting given that um we insured it for 25 million pounds um and and they were there they 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 saw exactly what we were doing with it and nobody batted an eyelid all day um we drove it okay we didn't drive it probably quite as fast as we possibly could because that didn't seem appropriate um but we certainly put it through its paces um you know i i think i did 160 170 miles an hour on it um so that car is there and it, and it and it does work so you know maybe if somebody at mclaren or if we can think of a reason to go to mclaren with an idea then maybe your your time may yet come <laughs> okay well i'll spend the rest of the day dreaming up some yeah, reason and, and, to and the weekend if i were you <laughs> uh okay well we need to start winding this podcast down but um i think we should do that by not looking back but looking forwards what do you make of the mclarens that are on their way i'm thinking specifically speedtail and elva um speedtail and elva fine um i am more interested in the speedtail because i think that's a i think it's a it's, it's an amazing looking car um and I, I i'm really interested in the idea of a proper luxury mclaren but they are you know and i think even mclaren would admit that these are sideshows they're not you know the mainstream products um and uh, you know we know that mclaren are going to stop um producing their um twin turbo v8 in time um and that they're going to go over to a twin turbo v6 with some kind of hybrid drive attached to it um and i'm very interested to see how that works out i'm very interested to see how mclaren can go over to a car which will obviously need to have you know electric motors and batteries and all that sort of thing and still stay stay true to their um 
mantra of you know weight being the enemy of all because they're absolutely right and it is and they need to absolutely stick to that you know we can't get into the you know a situation where you've got you know mclaren sports cars weighing you know 16 1700 kilos um so you know i'm fascinated to see how they square that particular circle i also want to see then break out beyond i mean every single mclaren that they produced in the last 10 years uh, whatever its purpose has been a two-seat mid-engine carbon tub car mm. with a twin turbo yes. v8 running through a seven-speed uh, you know, double clutch gearbox um you know i would like to see mclaren do you know a front engine gt if i'm honest with you um or certainly do a two plus two um and as we all know um you know two plus two cars with mid-engine configurations are really really difficult to do just because of the amount of stuff you've got to stick between the wheelbase and that's before um you start thinking about you know where you're going to put your battery pack and where you're going to put your electric motors and that sort of thing so um it is just easier if you do it the other way around um so i'm i'm fascinated by where mclaren goes next i think mclaren is getting to the stage now where um it's got to take a it's got to take the next step um and it's got to break out of um you know the comfortable place it's been making you know these wonderful wonderful cars but you know i think that there is a perception that um mclaren has done very successfully you know probably much of what can be done with the current recipe um and uh, you know maybe as an as well as as opposed to an instead of i'd just like to see something completely different from them and i think you know for me i don't see at all why i can see absolutely why mclaren should never and could never do let us say an suv i think that would be horrendous particularly at this time for a mclaren for for, for a company like mclaren but a really really beautiful sporting front engine two plus two yeah why not why not yeah completely agree i'd love to see that um okay well let's let's wrap things up then it we'll have to wait and see if uh the bottom really has fallen out the used supercar market or if we're looking at a covid-19 induced blip i suppose over the coming months we'll 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 find out um but there we go let's let's leave it there andrew um thank you very much for your time oh, everybody you, listening everybody listening um please remember to leave some feedback uh wherever you get your podcast rate it um and please do subscribe as well to the drive nation podcast if you can um it helps us and hopefully it helps you to find them and never miss an episode um and now andrew if i say uh, one final word on mclaren you're going to say i want to go and drive one now aren't you (laughs) (laughs) yes but but that kind of never changes um you know Uh, yeah uh, yes yes please um ready when you are yeah former q um okay well we'll speak to you all again next week um andrew thank you for your time Ken, thank you and uh, everybody out there many thanks for tuning in listening to us and uh, we'll be back again this time next week to do it, do it all over again yep bye everyone cheers a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.